Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor. Before we get started, we just wanted to remind you that we made a documentary. 11 Years, The Rise of UK Fintech is now available to watch for free at 11years.phil. In just 60 minutes, you'll learn how the financial crisis caused a reform in UK regulation that encourages competition, why London has been the perfect environment for fintech innovation, why UK fintech is so attractive to VC firms and angel investors, why the CEOs of the UK's most successful fintech companies started their businesses here, and what future challenges and opportunities exist for UK fintech. And, well, just so much more. Uh, Check out 11years.film, share it with your network using hashtag 11years. Okay, let's get on with today's show. This week, we bring you another mashup of interviews live from Cybos, this year in London's Excel Centre. Last week, we brought you a roundup of top London-based fintechs. This week, we're bringing you a more international flavor with a closer look at deep tech infrastructure. We have some amazing conversations to bring you from Anna Brailsford, CEO of Code First Girls, Bharat Busan, CTO of Banking and Financial Markets at IBM, Jacqueline Keogh, who's SVP of Western Union, and Nikhil Kumar, co-founder of Setu, an Indian startup building financial infrastructure to help kickstart Indian fintechs. Okay, let's get into it. Starting off with a fantastic conversation I had with the brilliant Anna Brailsford, CEO of Code First Girls. And just a word of warning, we're at a conference, so there's a bit of noise disturbance from the stage nearby, but please try and ignore it and focus on the words of wisdom from Anna. Let's hear from her now. Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews, coming to you from Cybos 2019 in London. I'm Simon Taylor, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Anna Brailsford, CEO at Code First Girls. Anna, thanks for coming on. How are you? Very, very well. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit just about yourself, about your background, and, and uh, who, who Linda is as well, the organization? Who, who, who's Linda? <laughs> oh, yeah. Infamous question. Uh-huh. Um, so a bit about my background. Uh, I actually started off in family companies. Um, my family had an educational technology company. So I used to come home from university, and I didn't really have a choice. I would have to work in the business of a summer. Uh-huh. Um, it taught me a huge amount, actually, about uh, education uh, and also about things like profit and loss. It was actually quite invaluable. The company was led by my mum. And after a couple of summers of that, I did what any sort of, you know, 21, 22-year-old would do, and that is get as far away from their family as possible. Uh, So, uh, yeah, I I took a job with an educational consultancy at that point, and I did that because it enabled me to go all over the world Um, and speak to different companies and learn all about um, their educational problems, their technology issues. Uh, And yeah, that was absolutely fantastic. Uh, And it was really following that process that I got headhunted um, by Lynda.com. You asked who Lynda is. Um, I looked it up recently and, and Lynda is actually the 57th most rich woman in the USA, <laughs> just behind Beyonce, and wow. I'm not sure about you, but for a lot of ladies out there, I mean, that's my def- definition yeah, of success. That's success, yeah. yeah success. Um, and yeah, I, I got headhunted to be uh, director of Linda, um, and basically head up uh, a lot of the European operations. Um, and it was a crazy ride. I mean, we just were growing like crazy, um, super, super successful. It was 100% year on year of growth. Um, kind of holding on for dear life at that point. <laughs> and um, we learned the news that we've been acquired by LinkedIn. Um, so I ended up being taken on uh, into what became LinkedIn Learning mm. and became a director of that. 
And yeah, it was the first time EdTech had kind of been given that level of valuation uh, in the market, you know? EdTech was uh, not really a phrase, I guess, until sort of four or five years ago. And, and a 1.5 billion valuation was, must have been uh, really quite significant. And that was, at the time, one of the biggest acquisitions in social media history, right? It was huge. Yeah, I mean, I believe uh, it was more than um, uh, YouTube was bought for. Mm -hmm. uh, so to, for EdTech to have that level of status was, was really big. Um, and yeah, it, it was the first time, you know, that uh, in the market there was a sense that EdTech had arrived and it had arrived on a big way uh, in Silicon Valley. Um, and yeah, it was going to make some serious inroads. And it's, it starts to be an industry that people wanted to be a part of. That's phenomenal. And I think we, uh, we all too often sort of uh, looked historically at uh, education through technology as being those are really annoying computer-based training programs and yep. to have anything that can make that better, especially if you're listening in a bank right now, yep. you've been in that pain. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, there are many companies, I think, in the market that um, made educational education, I'm going to say painful, um, really gave education a bad name. And what was significant about Linda and the reason it got that level of valuation is it was the first time really a company had taken the consumer seriously. Yes. And uh, in, in many respects, it was known as the Apple of video content. And Linda realized that if you lead with the consumer, the consumer tends to lead companies, right? They, mm -hmm. they tend to be um, leading in terms of choice and uh, being at the cutting edge of the market. They then brought that into businesses. So if you do well with consumers and then you bring it into businesses, you can absolutely storm the market. It's interesting, yeah, starting at what works for a consumer and then taking those practices and scaling them out because ultimately the people who work in businesses are still humans after all just because they happen to work for a business. You, you've literally touched on something, right, that takes people so, uh, so many companies so long to, to understand. I've literally sat with companies and they will be sitting there trying to calculate the ROI of like, Ed tech. And I, I literally have to, I've said to them in the past, I'm like, you know what? That person that comes into work, comes into the office, is the same person that goes home at night. They're a whole person. They have a multiplicity of interests and they want to learn about different things. And you know what? If you want to keep someone and keep them happy and embrace them, let them learn and let them learn things they want to learn about and grow as an individual. And that's what the future of the workplace people is People are looking for that learning and that growth. Mm -hmm. And people get a real sense of satisfaction if you can create it in a way where it's genuinely engaging. And, yeah. and you know, as people who uh, take a bit of pride in trying to create content that is engaging, yeah. where really it's about on giving, your, giving the listener or the, the reader or the person watching the video the excuse to learn by just being that bit more engaging in the way that you do it. Because if you make it really dry, you're going to lose them before they've had the, uh, they're not able to suspend their cynicism and, and really let go and enjoy the process of learning. It's about almost having the luxury, and it is the luxury at times, to take much more of an authentic approach mm -hmm. and, and lead with the person. I mean, what a crazy thing to do, right? Who would have thought it? Leading with the person actually gets you far further as a company and in terms of the quality of, of what you're producing. So, uh, And let's talk about um, Code First. Um, so uh, tell us about the journey to get there and, and really what does Code First Girls do? So um, I was taken into role, I think it's about four months ago now, but it, it already, <laughs> it already <laughs> feels like significantly longer than that, which is a good thing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I 
I saw the role and I saw the opportunity and I actually thought it was incredibly rare um, because this company is set up and dedicated as a change agent in the technology business. It is dedicated to getting more women into technology. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is really about providing women with uh, educational opportunities. Um, and they don't necessarily have to come from a computer science background. They don't have to come from a STEM background. We actually realize that many women want to get into this. They just don't necessarily know how. Interesting. So we provide them with the opportunity to do that. Uh, and then at the end of that, um, at the end of the education, we then pair those women basically with job opportunities in the market. And the courses are free um, to women and non-binary in order to promote that diversity. But are you seeing that demand coming from the employer space for engineering talent? 100%. This is an area where there is a complete um, over, uh, under supply and um, high demand, right? Mm -hmm. Sorry, under supply, high demand. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and it really has created sort of the perfect conditions for an organization like Code First Girls to exist. Um, we want to increase the number of women learning to code. And it's not just coding, by the way. We also uh, do things like data science as well, mm -hmm. um, creating DevOps engineers. Um, we're increasing the number of women that are joining that pool and then connecting them with industry. Mm -hmm. So we're meeting the demand from industry. But yeah, there are, um, there's a big, big demand in this area right now. And do you think there's uh, a lot of challenges with the tech industry still being seen as such a boys club that you have to overcome when you're creating uh, and trying to match some of that demand back into industry? Yeah, and uh, you've picked up on a really important issue there, that it's not merely about getting women in. It's about ensuring that they land successfully mm -hmm. and then thrive in that environment. And if you've got a workplace that's consistently perceived as a boys club, quite frankly, you could spend loads of money on getting a woman through the door but you're not going to keep her, right? You're yep. not going to retain her. So that issue about um, boys club really is a cultural issue that's attached to a lot of organizations um, that needs to change. And it needs to change from the top down, uh, but it also needs to change um, in relation to the people uh, that are within that organization that are probably propagating that culture. Yeah. Um, so Sometimes it's an awareness of the culture, sometimes it's an awareness of one's own action, the unconscious biases, uh, and many of those sorts of things that we all carry day to day, uh, where we can be making conscious effort to improve. I 100% agree with you. And for me, it's very much about men being part of the solution as well. Mm -hmm. um, there's a really powerful uh, phrase that comes to mind um, around reframing, mm. which is when you get men involved in some of the problems that are happening around women in technology, they start to perceive their culture and their surroundings differently. Wow. They start to become far more aware of maybe their own behaviors that could be putting women off. And as a result, they start to change their own behaviors. So it's not just about the organization, it's about looking at men and women as individual players as well mm -hmm. to change something together. So as we look at London and Europe, and London especially as a fintech hub, um, do you think that uh, we, uh, there are massive opportunities out there for the female talent? And do you think the, uh, the, uh, the venture capital space is uh, really doing everything it can to, to support that, that journey for women? I think the opportunities uh, in fintech are absolutely huge. Um, there is absolutely no doubt that London, I think, is leading the world when it comes to this. Um, I think I heard the other day that um, investment in London outstrips the USA 
and China when it comes to, to fintech companies. So um, it, the level of opportunity that's creating is absolutely huge for women. However, when opportunity presents itself, also a lot of issues present themselves as well. Uh, and I think um, when companies are growing and when an industry is growing very, very quickly, they can sometimes forget about um, some of the things they need in place in order to bring women into the conversation and make sure that women are get a, getting a sort of a, an equal opportunity when it comes to things like that. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, the challenges of being a growing business, of needing to hire people quickly, uh, you can rush to the uh, easiest answer sometimes all too easily. And having been an owner of a startup, I totally understand what that feeling is. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you're starting off, it is very much about survival and very much about your bottom line. Mm -hmm. And looking at diversity through those lenses is incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. So more can be done and I think more space should be given if huge investments are being put on the table for a certain proportion of that to be placed as maybe a long-term investment mm -hmm. for getting more women into the industry. Well, it's interesting though, I mean, you're probably more familiar with these than me, but the statistics of female entrepreneurs, female top talent is uh, in improved performance for business. Mm. So from a, from a venture perspective, surely that is helping your investment if you were to, to see it along those lines. Yeah, I think it's... Um, I think it's a lot more clear cut when it comes to organizations and companies than when it comes to entrepreneurs mm. and investing in um, founding teams that happen to be female. Um, I think we're making huge strides within organizational um, equality um, and a, a lot is being done around that and it's, it's really delivering financial results for those companies, it, it really is. However, when it comes to female entrepreneurs, we actually have a very, very serious issue. I think that's starting to develop, um, which is essentially all um, an all female founding team is, uh, I think it's something like a hundred times less likely to receive investment than a male team. Wow. So, uh, and, 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 and there are co complex reasons as to why that's happening, mm -hmm. but the statistics are quite frankly scary right yeah. now. Unbelievably so. So um, I guess when we look at this um, from a banking industry as well as a, as a fintech perspective, we are here at Cybos. Um, what are the topics that you're hearing at Cybos? What, what's your takeaway from, from where the industry is and, and the challenges it faces, both for diversity and more broadly, of course? So um, I was doing a speaker slot today about um, skills and reskilling within mm -hmm. the financial industry. Um, and they were taking live polls during that um, speaker slot as to what people felt were the most uh, important skills for the future. And actually, it was quite interesting, the results. A lot of people said that uh, innovation, creativity, and problem solving mm -hmm. were the most important and in-demand skills right now within the financial sector. It's quite interesting because those things can be applied, obviously, within technology. Uh, they, they really run across the field. So it seems to me like they're the most in-demand skills at the moment. Um, in terms of what I've been talking about and networking about, a lot of it's been about fintech. A lot of it has been about how London is still leading the way um, despite what's happened with Brexit and how, how is London going to fuel that drive for talent when essentially we could be saying no to people coming to London from further afield. It's um, going to become even more critical that we open up to any talent that's already here. Yes, and that is the 
that is the, 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 the main topic that's, that's the main topic of conversation that's taking place outside of the speaker slots today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Interesting stuff, uh, especially between the lines. So <laughs> what advice would you give to fintechs entrepreneurs or even larger financial services companies as you look at engineering talent, as you look at um, coding talent uh, mm -hmm. and diversity? What, what are the things that you find A, frustrate you and B, you know, sort of are the best ways to overcome those? People don't necessarily have had to have come from a traditional technology background or, say, computer science background. Um, what we're learning is that providing somebody can skill themselves and have the right mindset, literally, you can take somebody from an arts background yeah. and they can go into coding. In fact, we have some great coders that are arts and humanities former students. Absolutely. Um, so an over-reliance sometimes on um, technical qualifications and accreditations, um, that's gone out the window. It's completely gone out the window. As somebody who left school at 16, I'm, uh, I'm very <laughs> f f fond of people not looking too hard at the qualifications. But it's very powerful because with what you've just said, and it's right, because we deal with women from many different backgrounds every single day. There's a huge democratization happening here around uh, coding uh, and things like data science in that you don't actually need really much formal education in order to become great at data science or, or great, uh, a great developer. Mm -hmm. um, so providing you've got the, the intelligence and the application and can learn the skill, you really can go very, very far in, the, in this industry. And, and I would argue that most people, uh, most professionals, learned most of the things that, they, that makes them who they are in their careers mm -hmm. after they left the formal education world. So that should be true of, of engineering too. Yes, and there is a big difference between knowledge yeah and skill and mindset. Mm. So I'm a big believer that um, skill and mindset will win every single day over pure knowledge acquisition that you might get from an, uh, an academic background. Here, here. Um, so what's next for you, Code First Goals, and uh, what does the future look like? Uh, very, very exciting. Um, so we are um, developing more and more employability programs, um, which for me is fantastic because Code First Girls has been known to date for educating um, you know, thousands and thousands of women for free. Um, when I came into the company, I was like, that's fantastic, but uh, I now want to get all of those women into jobs. Um, so it's looking far more at what the industry needs in order to employ a woman from our huge alumni and then giving women more educational opportunities so that they can go down that road and at the end of it, they can get a job in the industry and they can flourish within the industry. Phenomenal. And uh, listen, uh, thank you so much, Anna, for joining us today. Uh, where can people find out more about you and what you're doing at Code First Girls? Uh, please go on our website, uh, codefirstgirls.org.uk, uh, uh, and please look at my Twitter handle, uh, Anna underscore Brailsford. Brilliant. Thank you so much. You can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter and thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast. Do leave us a review on iTunes. We love those reviews. Pass the podcast along. And if you know somebody who loves fintech and who isn't listening to Fintech Insider, tell them about the show. Um, if you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you very much and goodbye for now. Great to hear from Anna and also the stuff in the background um, that didn't get in the way of Code First Goals, which is also so, so important. Um, next up, I spoke to longtime listener, uh, first time uh, attendee on the show and first time joining us, Barat Brasan of IBM. Let's hear from him. 
Welcome back to Fintech Insider Interviews coming to you from Cyboss 2019 in London. I'm Simon Taylor and I'm joined by Bharat Bhushan, if I said that right? Yes, yeah, that's right. Bharat Bhushan, CTO, Banking and Financial Markets at IBM. How are you doing, sir? I'm good. How you had you? a good Cyboss? You know, this is my first time at Cyboss. Really? I, I, you know, I didn't know what to expect, um, but uh, it's, it's, massive, it's a massive event mm -hmm. and you can see Lots of money being spent at, uh, at Cyboss. Yeah, it's, uh, so it's, it's fascinating. We've had lots of interesting conversations. And, and I guess you've probably done other trade shows. So how does this contrast to some of those? Uh, scale, I think this is definitely much bigger scale. And also, um, a lot of banks are here exhibiting, whereas in other trade shows, you get vendors too. Vendors. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So this is, uh, this is interesting from that point of view. You get a different perspective. This is a, I would describe it as a banking conference for bankers. Yes. Uh, so, so it's it's quite fascinating. And and, and some interlopers uh, in there as well from from the non banks, but mostly yeah. banking first. That's yes. interesting. Um, and speaking of our good friends, the banks, what do you think the what challenges are you hearing from them, and what are their biggest limitations that you see within them as they look to the next five ten years, where you know the external market pressures, the regulation has pushed for competition. Uh, you have uh, non-banks that are increasingly competing with them. Yes. Sort of, what are their limitations to be able to, to do something about that? That's a that's an interesting question, Simon. So I think um, the, the, you asked about the long-term vision of the bank. I don't I don't anymore come across banks that are looking at ten-year ten ten-year uh, ten vision because first of all, uh, that used to be the case a few years ago. There would be a 2020 vision or 20, 2025 vision, but because the technology is changing at such a fast pace. There's really no, no one can really predict what would happen in two years' time, you know, what happens with quantum computing, what would happen with some of the other cyber issues. So you really have to, I think what, what the banks have really realized is that they, can, they have to prepare for the unknown and the unpredictable future, and they're trying to do their best to, to do that in the short to medium term. So but, you know, what they are doing is kind of preparing uh, their plans for the next you know, 12 to 24 months, which is concrete, deliverable, uh, and looking at core modernization, looking at client experience, looking at resilience uh, as, a, as a major factor, especially in the UK context, where we've seen quite a lot of failures, uh, banking system failures over the last two years. And so there's a lot of focus on making sure that systems are running, they're operational, they don't impact lives of people and paying mortgages and, and getting paid and, and so on. How do you see the resilience question changing as we look at cloud infrastructure versus kind of legacy and, and, and yeah. that conversation? Uh, I think it changes for the better uh, because um, both in terms of, so, so another aspect of resilience is cyber. So the amount of money that uh, IBM is pouring into, for example, into making sure that our cloud infrastructure is secure and resilient uh, it's hard to match that for every single bank um, in their own data centers, right? Mm -hmm. So I think banks are moving to the cloud, A, to be innovative, B, to scale very, very quickly. So if you're a small company and you want to launch a new idea quickly, uh, you don't really want to be standing up a new data center. You want to instantiate new services on the cloud and then um, bring new Lego pieces into that architecture very, very quickly. So you know you don't have have to build up your own machine learning capability, your AI capability, you can really bring those innovative things in and enhance existing products and services. So when people are moving into the cloud though, are you seeing that transition be something that's lift and shift or are people really thinking about how they move that with a bit more thought? I guess you're yeah. seeing both. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of both. I think uh, the, the the majority of the clients, so there are certain workloads that you can't really uh, 
modernized. So they, there are certain applications that are designed in a certain way. Maybe the people have, the, who designed it have left. There's not much, not much skills left. Yeah. So those workloads, they would lift and shift onto a cloud-based infrastructure and make sure that it's working, it's resilient, and it can scale across uh, uh, geographies uh, as well. Whereas um, I would call them front-channel digital experience layer systems, which are still being built, where mm -hmm. perhaps these are new microservices that are uh, taking functionality from core systems bringing them closer to the edge of the network. You know, those systems is, are really where the magic is really happening at the moment. Interesting to think as well as we get to the edge of the network and closer to the customer. Uh, customer experience has been, it feels like um, almost like going to church on Sunday sort of thing. <laughs> people sort of say the words, yes. but do, how many people do you think really get it? It yeah. feels like we know it should be important, but yes. there's a difference between doing it and doing it well. So uh, I come from a development background and I can tell you that we, when we were doing development before, it was always looking at database tables first and looking at, you know, now I need to design my UI or which tables, which fields have I got. Now pretty much every single bank that I work with, uh, you walk into their offices and there's post-it notes uh, everywhere. I'm sure 3M have made a lot of money through this design yeah. thinking uh, philosophy. So the design thinking philosophy primarily coming from other industries, I think retail have really, uh, really what came up with the idea many years ago, and then now retail banks and corporate banks thinking about empathy, thinking about the user, what would you want the user to feel, see, do on a UI, and ask for information once and only once. So there are lots of techniques that they're applying and enabling their people as well on running design thinking workshops, uh, stakeholder mapping, but also I think over time, historically, the business have seen IT as, a, as an inhibitor to launching new products and services quickly. But I think now, at least in, uh, in some of the banks that we're working with, we see these two business units coming together and using design thinking as the glue to, to bring the two together. So you're seeing those, that sort of squad formation where you get that uh, multiple skills in a small team. Yes. How do large organizations like banks who may have been more organized in silos historically start yes. to do that more? It's, it's a really hard problem uh, because, as you say, there's lots of silos. Um, pe people have, hold on, have held on to information to create their information empire uh, and stuff like that. But I think uh, banks have very clearly realized that if they don't uh, break those silos down and get teams to work together, uh, th this won't happen, which is why you see things like innovation teams being set up, yeah. uh, which usually have um, top-down approval ratings, right? So, so the CEOs, CIOs would, would make sure that they can access any part of the bank that they want. They have funding. Um, where I think they probably fall short is they might do a very interesting proof of concept, but scaling that across the yeah. bank is where I think there's some Because I think there's something needed. about, like, everybody wants the dream of Agile at scale, but nobody wants to change their budget cycle. Yes. And, and actually, can you change the... Is it, just, is it enough to change just how you do software development, or do you have to change a lot more around yeah, it's it? It's a lot more around it, because, you know, it's, I think, you know, it's cliche thing to say, but it's uh, people, process, and, uh, and technology. Mm -hmm. So people, I find, um, banks have to do a lot more to educate uh, and bring people on a journey uh, on, you know, you, you can't just be an agile bank by doing one project. Well, uh, and especially it, right? if you've got people that have done 20, 30 years of working in yes, waterfall and are very good at that yes. and have made the organization a success. It's yes. almost like um, the banks ossified around what made them successful yes. and now that, that muscle doesn't move like it used to, that joint doesn't yes. work yes. because that was what was successful. Yes, but it won't, it won't be successful in this day and mm -hmm. age. They, they have to flex in a different way and it's a matter of training that muscle in a slightly different way, which mm -hmm. is what I see 
banks are doing very, very quickly, and there's a lot of focus on retraining, education, and things like getting people to understand what does DevOps really look like? Mm -hmm. you know, how do you integrate services and build pipelines so you're no longer, you can do tiny small changes uh, on a weekly basis and roll those changes out to a small subset of your customers and then roll out to, to broader set of customers. So we were seeing, and, and the, the evidence is, in, uh, is on the app stores, right? So every now and then you see some of the apps getting updated on a weekly basis as, as some of the social uh, apps do. Indeed, and I think it was um, Monzo said they were uh, they're averaging between 10 and 20 code releases a day. On some days it'll be 40, and they've they've done more. Than and they that. do it on a subset level as well, right? So yes. they might issue it to you, but not to me. Oh, and they're, they're, uh, and, and a lot of other challenger banks as well. Not to not to just pick one uh, are able to segment customers by yeah. you know, sort of when they were onboarded into cohorts, yeah. um, you know, their preferences, and identify things and themes that you know to really test a feature and capability to create yes. BT user groups. This is very, very hard to do in the old command and control yes. modules uh, in, in way of working. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about cognitive and AI, because this feels like, I'm going to be honest, you guys have done a lot of marketing around cognitive <laughs> and AI. I see a lot of stuff in airports. Yes. But what's the re tangible reality here? Like, is this something that you can really use if I'm still struggling to change how I'm working and I'm still struggling to get the basics right? Yeah, so uh, we're seeing a lot of use cases around uh, AI and machine learning, so right from internal use cases to finding out what skills are needed in the organization to, uh, to identify those gaps to some of the operational systems. Um, for example, for financial crimes and uh, payment fraud detection, we're using our technology to help banks detect uh, fraud, particularly in the open banking PST2 space mm. um, as well. And, and um, now I think you know, with the acquisition of Red Hat and OpenShift and a number of other kind of platforms becoming part of IBM portfolio, we will see an even further um, increase of using AI in operational systems as well, so making sure we predict some of the cyber issues and operational issues from an IT point of view as well. Do you think within that world of AI, we need to be also multi-cloud, coming back to your resilience well, point? Well, multi-cloud is, I think, a reality. Um, mm. Whilst uh, most banks have started on a journey to cloud, and they have shifted some of the workloads, and I think going back to your previous point, that most of the workload to, as of today is lift and shift. So mm -hmm. can I lift this and move it onto cloud because I want to turn off the lights in my data center. Uh, but the regulator is very clear that you need to be a resilient organization, mm -hmm. right? So, and you can't have resilience by just relying on one partner. Maybe there's a concentration risk of too many banks using a single data center in a single geography. Yeah. Uh, and so we are absolutely seeing um, a lot of conversations are around, I'm already on this cloud, I want to use, make sure that I can run the same service with the same SLA on IBM Cloud, how do I make that happen? And that's where the multi-cloud journey kind of comes in. Multi-cloud becomes key, and do you think the, the conversation around cloud has been um, cost reduction, and do you think that's the right conversation, or is actually, I, I, I would argue maybe it's the wrong conversation. It is, I, I think uh, maybe three to four years ago, that was the, the kind of the starting point. Okay, you know, internal cost is too high, I want a server with these specs, can you do it cheaper? But now the conversation is much broader and much more interesting in my view. Now the conversation is about, I want to build new products and services, how do I do it? I need to involve, uh, invoke AI uh, services to do onboarding better. I want to read a document using by taking a picture, uh, check imaging for example, right? So how do I do it using your cloud? And being able to bring those Lego bricks and, and enhance the existing uh, things that you built is where the conversation is now going. So cost is a, an element of it, and sure, it will help you improve your cost of efficiency, uh, cost income ratios, and so on. But majority of the conversation is around core modernization, 
VNext, uh, what does the next banking architecture looks like, and uh, innovation. Exciting stuff. Well, uh, as we're looking into the future like that, um, I guess uh, you've been here at Cybos, you've been hearing about the market trends. What do you think we'll be talking about in Cybos next year? Oh. So, you know, this year, although the theme is kind of, kind of is hyper-connected um, world. Um, what does that mean? Well, it means that everything is connected to everything. Uh, but what does right? that so, mean? <laughs> so what does that mean is that I, I am able to order an Uber, for yeah. example, uh, and not to have to worry about payment. That, that system so is kind of happening. it's about end-to-end journeys. It's end-to-end, and there's more volume being generated from machines than it is from humans, right? right? So, so you, do, you focus on the, 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 the bank focuses on the experience, and the, the plumbing uh, behind the scenes takes care of the everything else, like mm -hmm. payments and KYC. So for example, why do I have to provide the same information twice if I'm buying another product from the same bank mm -hmm. that I've been with for 20 years, right? Which so, is almost that shift from banks, the provider of commodity products, to banks, the provider of a service. Well, like, there are three types of uh, uh, banks that we're now beginning to see. There's bank as a factory, so banks that produce the, the current account, the, the savings products, and selling it to their client. There's bank as a distributor. Uh, where they might be white labeling other people's products. Uh, so a full service bank may not have their own insurance. They might have mm -hmm. white labeled something from LNG or Aviva or, or another company. Uh, and then bank as a platform. This is where we see people like Starling, uh, for example. Oh, or maybe even Clearbank. Yeah, Clearbank as well, right. A traditional platform. Exactly. Because Banker and uh, Starling are in both that marketplace, consumer space, and yes. a little bit of platform. Whereas yes. Clearbank feels Clearbank is all about platform. All about yeah, platform. Interesting to see that evolve. What hugely interesting perspectives. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, where can people find out more about you and what you're doing at IBM? Um, so um, I, uh, I'm reachable on uh, Twitter at, uh, it's very complicated, underscore Barrett underscore. Couldn't find a proper Twitter uh, uh, handle anymore. Underscore Barrett underscore. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, you know, at ibm.com slash UK, uh, or reach me via LinkedIn. Uh, I am responsible for technology solutions and innovation for banking and financial markets. Um, so I would be happy to, 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 to talk to your listeners. Barrett Bershon, thank you very much for being on Fintech Insider. Thank, thank, thank you very you. much. Thanks. Today, Customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Thanks to Barat. Uh, and next up, uh, well, it wouldn't be Cybos if we weren't chatting payments infrastructure. So let's hear from Jacqueline Keogh, who's SVP over at Western Union. Uh, welcome back to Fintech Insider Interviews, coming from Cybos 2019 in London. I'm Simon Taylor, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Jacqueline Keogh. Keogh, yes. So close. I feel like I didn't quite do it right, it's but I'm okay. glad you said it for It's you. Irish and it's unusual. It is. Lots of vowels. Uh, but you're uh, Senior Vice President and Member of the Executive Committee at Western Union. Uh, member of the Executive Committee of Western Union Business Solutions. 
Okay. Not the overall business. That's an important distinction. Yes. Thank you for that. Uh, we shall change the show notes accordingly. <laughs> uh, all right. Thank you for coming and getting involved. Uh, we we're just saying this has been a, a long side boss. But what are your impressions of the show so far? This show, the big themes, big trends that you've uh, seen coming up. Um, I suppose the first, my first impression is that um, it's more positive this year than it's mm. been for a few years. Interesting. The, for a few years now, the, the discussions have been much more driven on the back of what do we need to do because of regulatory requirements? Yes. So, you know, last year, PSD2 and open banking was a regulatory requirement. This year, it's much more of a how can we capitalize on the investment we're making so that we actually deliver a better value proposition to our clients? That's powerful. So to me, that's a, it's a good shift from a, a, an obligation to a desire, yeah. which is more positive. It's almost like the stick has become a carrot somehow magically. Absolutely. And people Absolutely. see an opportunity in it. It's, it's a powerful thing. And I guess um, as we drill beneath that, you mentioned open banking and, and uh, some of the opportunities around there. But as we get into payments, you know, GPI's had a big role to play this year. 56% of uh, kind of SWIFT member, uh, sorry, payments now apparently use GPI. But do you still think there's big challenges in payments on the consumer side, on the corporate side? And, and what are those? Um, so I agree, SWIFT GPI is it's a really good initiative. It's good that the industry are actually collaborating around providing an SLA that allows this to happen. But it's a reflection of the move to instant payments as for an industry, real-time payments and an instant payments. That in its own right was a fantastic um, benefit for our clients, you know, whether we are talking about consumers or businesses, creates the challenges for the banks to provide it. because. It's fine to be instant, as long as your back office is instant as well. Mm, I see, yeah. So, it, it, I'll, I'll give you the prime example. You want an instant payment. We go back to our regulatory requirements. You want an instant payment, but you want an instant payment that isn't fraudulent, and you want one that is going to meet all of your obligations. Well, to do that takes a bit of effort. And it means that everybody needs to ensure that all of their back office, including their compliance function, can deal with real time. Um, and, and actually, so that's, that's, a, that's a challenge for the industry. Because it's not about SWIFT updating their standards, it's about all of the industry updating what's going on behind the scenes. Absolutely. And that Absolutely. Is, is massive. So, uh, how do you think um, folks that are coming in and competing on that basis are, are changing the conversation? Would a, would a fintech like TransferWise you know, change the consumer expectation uh, around some of that stuff? I, I think generally, uh, increased competition and innovation around technology has given consumers in particular more visibility and it's giving them a much better experience. That in its own right is positive. It's positive for our clients and it's actually what the industry needed. Occasionally any industry can become a little bit stale and needs a bit of a, a kick jolt, yeah. to, to remind it that you know their clients are first. So the, the engagement of fintechs has been a good thing in the industry. Uh, and they have improved the client experience. But there's something we always need to remember, is that everything that happens is built on a foundation. Many of the fintechs that we talk about, they're fintechs that can provide a very good front-end experience. The underlying clearing and settlement is the original foundation of the industry. Mm -hmm. So you still have payment systems, you still have banks, you still have central banks, they're the organizations that all of those fintechs are still relying on. Yep. They, they can't go alone. They're, they're in a, they sit on top of they all of us. They sit on top. Now, now, some of the fintechs have the ability, if they build a big enough community, to 
um, to net settle within that community. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a, a book transfer. So yeah. you can do that within that community, but it means you're restricted to that community. Mm -hmm. So whilst I absolutely agree that, that additional fintechs are positive, let's not kid ourselves that they can't be successful unless the foundation, which is the core industry, not only engages with them, but is equipped to, to operate with them. And then we've seen on the consumer side, we've also seen that shift in the B2B side. I'm hearing a lot about instant B2B payments these mm -hmm. days and, and the need for international payments that are instantaneous. And uh, GPI is a part of that and the payments with your banks, but we're seeing lots of other providers come into that B2B Absolutely. space. What, what do you think the nuances around some of the business challenges are in that instant payment space? Um, so the... the the increased demand in the, in the consumer space is quite rightly feeding into corporates. If you are a small business, your mindset around, well, if I can do that as an individual, why can't I do it as a small business? Mm -hmm. Which is a perfectly fair and reasonable question. The challenge is to do it as a small business is a bit more complex. Yeah. Because even to onboard, to accredit a small business at the outset, the amount of information you need, the amount of regulatory requirements you need to satisfy is greater. Yep. So you can onboard a consumer in minutes. Because it's one person, because not it's one five person. directors with a holding and company. And you can find out around, you can get access to their passport, you can find all the data you need. To do that um, for a corporation is more challenging. Mm. To do that in a cross-border environment, where not every country in the world is the UK with a company size register, where you've actually got to source information in a different way, makes it more challenging. It's not impossible, it's just more challenging. So we just need to manage expectations that we can deliver a much better proposition in a corporate environment than we do today, but it's never going to be equal to a consumer environment. And as it comes to tackling some of those challenges, what do you see as the, the things that are going to help with those challenges? Is it going to be uh, the investment in the consumer experience size? Is it going to be investment in infrastructure? Is it going to be standards? Because um, it's, it's Cyboss every year, there's the talk of standards, but it feels like GPI has come a long way and they're thinking about what's next. It feels like Swift has, albeit some smaller ones, but some competitors out there of people looking at what other standards are, uh, Ripple and the like. Um, so do you think that, that that competition in infrastructure might be a good thing? I, I, competition is always a good thing. In, in every industry, for every purpose, is always a good thing. Um, and I actually believe personally that what we're seeing in this industry is we're seeing the industry being componentized. In the past, an organization, a bank, would do everything end yeah. to end. Now, with the existence of fintechs, with greater competition coming into the market, with the development of a lot of innovative technologies, organizations are now starting to specialize. Mm -hmm. They're saying, I'm an expert in um, platform. I'm an expert in onboarding. I'm an expert in compliance. That actually means that the quality of the offering is going to be better because if you're an expert, you understand that need better. So the quality of the offering is better. And whilst all of the things you mentioned will absolutely help the industry, I believe that the most important thing the industry needs to do is it needs to learn how to partner effectively. That's an interesting point because FinTech 1.0 was about uh, compete. FinTech 2.0 is much more about collaborate. FinTech 3.0 is like who's the specialist, who's the best at what they do. And Absolutely. you see the likes of Onfido and Jumio and the onboarding space, really good at digital onboarding and they specialize in that. Uh, but you've seen also around cybersecurity, you're getting small specialists rather than uh, the organization that used to do all of the things itself. Uh, now increasingly there are specialists, small bits of 
it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's almost like when uh, the Henry Ford was manufacturing the Model T, they had the rubber plants, they had the steel plants, they would put everything together themselves. Now, really, cars have an assembly line and, and a, a network of suppliers. And maybe we're seeing the same in financial well, services. I believe we're seeing the very same. And, and I believe to be successful in this industry, you, you either need to be a really, really good specialist in, in a particular function capability. It could be geography, it could be industry, or it could be a functional capability. But you need to be a very good specialist who is capable of partnering. Mm -hmm. Or the other thing you need to be is you need to be a fantastic orchestrator who will provide the end-to-end -end solution by partnering with a lot of organizations. So you're the specialist or you're the orchestrator, one or the other. But both of them require you to be an excellent partner. Fantastic um, uh, thoughts there. Listen, um, as we're in Cybos 2019 and we're looking at potentially Cybos 2020 coming at us, what do you, how do you think the conversation is going to evolve in the next year? We talked about instant payments earlier. But we're in very early stages of that, very early stages. Only a limited number of countries have actually implemented a, a true instant capability. So that's still relatively early in this journey. And what we aren't discussing, we've started discussing, but what, we, what the industry needs to discuss even to a greater extent is, how do we deal with that instant payments? I mentioned what needs to happen in the back office, but let me take it further. How do we deal with liquidity in that environment? It's interesting that uh, we saw um, the former founder of WorldPay, uh, uh, with, of course, ClearBank, Nick Ogden, has announced RTGS.Global. Um, and I think the industry is waking up to that challenge because liquidity is so critical, if you, especially yes. if you're deconstructing who the suppliers yes. are. And, and, and real-time uh, real real liquidity. True instant payments needs real-time liquidity. It doesn't need end-of-day batch settlement. doesn't need net settlement three times a day. It needs true instant settlement on the spot. That's tough. Because the last time I checked, most people actually want to work a five or a six day week. Mm -hmm. uh, money markets aren't open 24 hours a day. Central banks are closed mm -hmm. over the weekends. How are you going to operate in a true real time instant environment and manage your liquidity in that environment unless we address either opening hours or come up with some very, very creative technology that allows us to manage that liquidity very effectively? Otherwise, it's going to cost a lot of people a lot of capital to make this instant payments work. Powerful, powerful thought to close us on. Uh, Jacqueline, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find out more about you and what you're doing at Western well, Union? I, I work for Western Union. Yeah. Feel free to look me up, Jacqueline Keogh at westernunion.com. You'll find, us on, find me on the website and approach any of my colleagues, and I'm sure they'll find me. Brilliant. Thank you so much for being on Fintech Insider. Uh, great pleasure. Thank, thank you very you. much. I enjoyed that chat with Jacqueline. We got into some real infrastructure stuff and some serious questions there. And of course, last but no means least, um, Lita spoke to Nikhil Kumar, who's co-founder at Setu, to find out more about how they're shaking up fintech in India. Let's hear from them now. Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. We're here at Cybos, as you can probably hear from the background noise. And I am possibly with my favorite person in the world. Nikhil, it's so good to see you. It's so good to see you too, Lina. Thank you so much for having me here. It's exciting for us to have you, and I'm sure it will be exciting for our listeners. The first time you and I met was on stage at Money Mac 2020, what feels like 100 years ago. That's right. You were working on some super exciting Fortunately, stuff. banking hasn't changed much since then. Well, it's 1% finished, right? It's 1% finished. Um, why don't you start us off with um, your work on UPI and India Stack and the amazing stuff you were talking to me about when we first met? 
Yeah, so uh, I spent like first half of my career largely working in technology companies. I was at a company called Tally, then I was at Intuit doing APIs. Uh, I kind of stumbled into banking uh, almost four years ago uh, with this thing. We all stumbled into banking. <laughs> we all stumbled into banking. Uh, and uh, this was four years ago uh, when we when I started working on this project called the Unified Payments Interface. Um, UPI is, based, is a pr payments protocol that we designed in India. Um, and uh, the goal of uh, UPI was if we could send an email from one application to another application, or if we could send an SMS from one application to another application, why couldn't we do the same for money? Um, so so it, was, it was a basically a geeky idea to say, you know, there are two software applications and can we make money transfer seamless in real time? Uh, so it started with this idea of designing a protocol, um, and uh, and you know, three years later, UPI is now the fastest growing public payments platform in the world. We did around 920 million transactions last month, and uh, it's amazing. Yeah. One of the things I find fascinating about it is that you know, very often you, you you have these amazing ideas, and people go, "It will never work. It will never work." Or maybe let's do it small, and and off you go, and you do it in in India, right. size, complexity. But one of the things that is fascinating is that it's a public good infrastructure. Talk That's right. About that. And so if you look at India, um, India is a largely, uh, you know, uh, is a very asset-heavy nation in the sense uh, people don't have uh, access to formal credit. So the formal credit penetration in India is super low. For example, uh, the unique number of credit cards in India issued is around 30 million for 1.3 billion people. Uh, so, uh, so when you think about payments in India, uh, largely the Western way of doing payments, which is largely card-based and POS-based, uh, were not the right solutions because of the high cost of transactions, both from a consumer's point of view and also from a merchant's point of view. Um, so, so in India, we have to rethink about payments from ground up to say, we got to think about doing this the right way. What is the right thing to do for people? What's the right thing to do for the society? Uh, so, which is why we always equate payments uh, to something like a, you know, a highway, uh, you know, or a bridge or a dam that, that the government or society at large is responsible to build for its people and citizens. Uh, so, UPI's genesis was around that, that can we build a public good on which, on top of which innovation can happen um, and go back to the basics of uh, banking where you know payments was never actually the business model of banking. Uh, payments became uh, a business model, I don't know, sometime probably 30, 40 years ago when... When somebody worked out they could actually <laughs> make money doing uh, it, yeah. So, so, so our uh, design principle has been, um, can, can this be a utility service? Just like how every Indian has access to water, uh, how every Indian has access to electricity, can every Indian have access to banking and digital payments. Using technology that has long been debated in, in the banking ecosystem, we'll come back to that because we are at Cybos where these conversations have actually been taking place, but using this technology to transform the most populous, well, the second most populous country in the world, uh, that's that's a, a heady and incredible thing to be working in. Did it feel like you were changing the world? Not not when I was starting. Uh, you know, uh, I I remember when when we started it was just a small bunch of people uh, talking and geeking more about the protocol and. Uh, 
uh, I remember hosting this hackathon. Uh, you know, when we first introduced UPI to the world, uh, there were like 330 people in the room, and there were 300 developers and 30 bankers. Uh, and uh, almost everybody thought, look, you know, why should we even be doing this? You know, and they already had a real-time payment system. Um, a lot many times when you want to build the future or when you want to create the future, the first question that comes to people's mind is like, why? Why, <laughs> why do you want to change the world? Uh, what's wrong with the world as is? So, uh, uh, you know, when we started, uh, it was almost like even, even the banks, large banks, institutions like, uh, you know, uh, even the regulators were like not really sure about what this could enable. Uh, so for us, uh, it started this, it's more as a societal mission to say, hey, if we build this fundamental infrastructure, there is this possibility of creating this, you know, innovation layer on top. Um, and there can be hundreds of people who can come and co-create solutions. Uh, so that was the biggest motivation that can can this be a co-creation exercise rather than thinking about it as a... As and although a, it's had its challenges, it has been a success. Right. Uh, which is humbling when you sit inside a bank, as I have done for a lot of my career, sitting here at Cybos with a lot of the bankers around us who endeavor to do much less right. with this technology. And it's, uh, it's overwhelming. And at times it goes terribly wrong because it's complex and it's big. So if, if, if anything, we, if you can do it in India, you can do it inside your bank, um, which is kind of what you're doing now. So, so tell us what what your company is doing now and how those learnings are being now brought to to our industry that um, I, I, I generally, sorely, sorely <laughs> I generally believe, you know, uh, uh, you know, experience is kind of overrated when you need, when you want to create the future or when you want to create something new in the future uh, because your past experiences uh, are not uh, asset anymore, it's actually a liability. Uh, so, for example, if you've been in banking, for say 10, 20, 30 years, um, it's more difficult for you to create the future of banking uh, because you have so much to unlearn. Um, and when you have nothing to lose or when you're starting from scratch, uh, there's, there's this one path that you see. You don't see problems, but you know you kind of see a milestone. The way, yeah. The yeah. way. So, uh, so for me, my journey has also been something like that. I, I got introduced to banking 30 years ago when my parents, you know, uh, uh, are rural bankers, uh, I've always seen banking as a way to deliver services to, you know, the most poor and marginalized people uh, because that's where, how I grew up with. My, my, my mother and dad, they used to go to the bank every day, early in the morning, come back late in the evening, uh, go to the, some of the remotest parts of India and, and serve these people. So it was broadly a service. Um, never felt like they were in business or you know they were working for a large company or so on and so forth uh, so I kind of carry that same you know uh, uh, 30 years later that it's to serve people continues to be the same uh, following the same uh, footsteps as my father and mother but in a very different way uh, in the sense that uh, can we do less and and create more impact uh, mm -hmm. so which is why the path of technology so in my new avatar, uh, uh, I'm one of the co-founders of a startup called Setu. Uh, Setu in Sanskrit means uh, a bridge, uh, and that's the closest that we could find for an API in, in Sanskrit. I love that. So, <laughs> and um, um, so our goal is to build uh, 
you know, you can think about it in many different ways. Our goal is to build a bridge between financial institutions and, and people, or build the bridge between financial institutions and developers who will create, you know, new banking experience yeah. for the next billion people in India. So what we're trying to do is unbundle banking into its primitives, uh, into its fundamental building blocks as stored value accounts, as money in infrastructure, money out infrastructure, a very engineer's view, uh, and then exposing this infrastructure uh, as brick, brick and mortar, so that you know people can build beautiful, you know, experiences on top. Um, the way to think about this is like if you if you see engineering uh, in the last hundred years, uh, you know, the most sophisticated engineering that we used to do was civil engineering, and you needed experts to be doing civil engineering. And as time passed, with the right kind of tools being built, bricks and mortar and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, today, value creation is you know uh, is on top of base fundamental. So nobody cares anymore on how you build the walls. Nobody cares anymore about what your flooring is. You know, those are standards that have been already set. So there's not specialized skills anymore. The specialization comes in the design layer. That you know, how do you decorate your house? So I believe as we go forward, software engineering is also going through a similar phase. AWS is a great example of uh, democratizing technology and tools so that anyone could become a software developer or build a software application or build a company on top of AWS. Similarly, we want to do the same for financial services. That If you can simplify the, the compliance burden, the technology that's required, um, we believe we can create hundreds of digital banking experiences uh, for a billion people in India. Uh, so, and that's, that's essentially what Seto is trying to do. Fantastic. So the mission continues, and here you are at Cybos. What does it feel like when you come to the most traditional part of banking with a pretty transformative mission? Are you finding your, your audience is ready for you? Well, uh, uh, so one of the largest problem, I mean, one of the biggest problems that I've seen is, you know, uh, it's easy to bring change with change in technology. It's easy to, you know, solve, uh, you know, process problems. One of the hardest problems that I've found is to change people. Um, and uh, and I hope uh, that, you know, with this conference, I get to meet people and, and try to inspire or share wisdom to say that, look, there is this change that needs to happen within us so that we can change the world for a better place. Um, so I strongly believe in advocating radical change over incremental change. Uh, and, uh, and I hope that you know, these conferences are an incremental change process leading to that radical change someday. And, uh, and I hope a few years from now we wake up and uh, and the world is a better place than what it is today. And this is one of the many reasons why you are my absolute favorite, right there for everyone to hear. Sadly, this is all we have time for today. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, I'm, uh, we are setu.co, S-E-T-U dot C-O. And my email is nickel at the rate setu.co. And uh, people can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at the rate nickel, N-I-K-H-I-L, K-U-M-A-R-K-S, nickel Kumar K-S. Uh, that's my Twitter handle, and you'll see me tweeting a lot of our, all sorts of random things. Fantastic. As always, a pleasure. Always Thank you for being pleasure. with us. Thank you so much, Lila. And that concludes this very special FinTech Insider Insights from Cybos 2019. Thanks to our guests, Anna, Barat, Jacqueline, and Nikhil. 
Don't forget to check out the documentary 11 Years, The Rise of UK Fintech, available now for free at 11years.film. Follow us on Twitter and all of the social media platforms for more exclusive content. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks for listening and goodbye.